Today we celebrate Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and we're also in the middle of a series reflecting on those words from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see play out in the book of Acts. Well, we see the disciples witnessing in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and then go on to the ends of the earth. Last week we looked at how Jesus is speaking to the disciples and to us and he says, you, you will be my witnesses. Speaking to all those that are gathered there, he's not just talking to the pastors or the missionaries or the teachers, but all people who would be his disciples even to you and to me, that we all have the call on our lives to be his witnesses. This week, we look at to Samaria and the ends of the earth. And that Jesus calls us as his people to be witnesses in those places. Particularly this week, we, we look at and we think about how God calls us to be witnesses to people who are radically different than us and to people a world away. When I say church, what do you think of? When I think of church, I think of being here. Being here at St. John's, I think of uh, the, the Samaritan woman. I think of the Good Shepherd window. I think of Jesus standing on top of the universe blessing us. I think of the church in Kansas City with the beautiful stained glass up front. And no, I haven't made my decision yet. <laughs> I think of the churches that I grew up in. I think of St. Paul in Michigan with the beautiful wood up in the front and the stained glass running down the side of either of the altars. But that's not the church. The church is the people. The, the church is, is you and me. The church is us. Jesus' disciples. But as I reflected on that, I noticed something. I noticed that in most of the places that I've been, in the church body that we call home, the people in the pews, the people that I've sat around and ate with at potlucks, the people that I've talked to and worked with and worshipped with and prayed with, they all look a lot like me. They all talk a lot like me. And that's not to say that there aren't some differences here and there and some diversity, but for the most part, most of the people look just like me. And that got me to think, start thinking about God's plan and the way that God has, has kind of worked all along. And, and from the very beginning, you get this kind of dynamic tension of together yet not together, these differences that kind of cause a little bit of aggravation. Because after all, Jesus, not Jesus, God started with the 12 tribes of Israel. His first people were the sons of Israel, and, and those 12 sons, those sons of Jacob, they didn't always get along. The tribes didn't get along, and yet they were together Israel. That's the way it is with siblings, isn't it? I grew up with two sisters and a brother, and we didn't get along. We still don't when we get together sometimes. And I think that's kind of part of the, the picture. I mean, 
And there's sometimes some serious disagreements. I mean, they threw one of the brothers in a well and then sold him into slavery. And so you see there's this tension how these people are called to be the people of God and yet they're not completely together. And then you kind of jump ahead and you see the disciples, the people that Jesus calls. And he doesn't call people that would all get along. My favorite is, is you've got Matthew the publican and you've got Judas, not that Judas, the other one, the zealot. His whole life was wrapped around the idea that Israel is once again going to become the holy nation. There's going to be independence. And he's probably part of Jesus' crew because he thinks Jesus is going to be the new governor in Jerusalem and he's going to restore glory and power to Israel. And then sitting across the circle from him, as Jesus says now, close your eyes and let's pray to the Father, is Matthew, the publican, the guy that's working for the enemy. Imagine that was a little tense. And at least one of them was keeping at least one eye partway open. And I think of Antioch. Antioch, where Christians were first called Christians. It's the ancient world, they built quarters in their cities. If you go to Israel today, you can still see how there's quarters for the different nationalities. And they did this for a very particular reason. Because they noticed that there was this affinity between people groups, between the Egyptians and the Jewish people and the Elamites and whoever else was gathered there. And there's this affinity with them. And so if, if a fight would break out in the marketplace with the Egyptians not getting along with the Israelites, that sort of fight could explode, erupt, and go throughout the city and burn down the city. And so they built quarters so that when something happened in the marketplace, they could shut the gates and stop the fighting. Except something interesting, something peculiar happened. There was this new group of people. This new group of people who couldn't be identified as Egyptians or Jews or Romans or Greeks anymore. Because they were in all parts of the cities. So they had to call them something different. Because these people were no longer bound together by a language, by the color of their skin, by where they were from. They're bound together by something greater, something stronger. And that was their faith in Jesus. And they were called Christians. Which brings us to our text. The Holy Spirit comes down on the disciples and the disciples go out and they start proclaiming the good news about Jesus. The good news about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and what he has done and, and who he is. And they proclaim it and God makes it through the power of the Holy Spirit that everyone hears it in their own language, regardless of nationality or race or language. They all hear the good news of God in their own language. And we see a different kind of picture. Uh, we see a picture that involves people of every race, tribe, and tongue. And that's where this convicts me. 
Because when I think about the picture of the church that I know, it doesn't always look like every race, tribe, and language. See, I believe that the kingdom of God is made up of people of every race, tribe, and tongue. I believe that Jesus is calling us to love people that are radically different from us. That the love of Jesus Christ breaks down barriers that separates races, that separates people of different socioeconomic status, that separates people politically. That the love of Jesus Christ is so much more than any of those differences. Love of Jesus binds us together in a way that nothing else can. So the last week I was in Kansas City and uh, I have a call there to our Savior. And so they were doing a little question and answer thing with me sitting up front. And, you know, kind of like this. I was up front, not in the pulpit, but on a, a stool behind a podium, nice and safe. And they started talking about how people are separated. We're talking about a food pantry ministry, and somehow it led to talking about kind of the tension that can exist between people of different nationalities. Because Kansas City is not all that far from St. Louis and Ferguson. And in Kansas City, there's still different areas in the city for different races. And so sitting up front, Nikita, who was a police officer there with her mother, start talking about it and she says, so how, how do people know that they belong? How do people know that? And I said, what I believe is that people of every race and tribe and tongue need to be in leadership in the church because people won't feel like they belong unless they can look up front and they say, there's someone like me, I belong there. I'm welcome." This is a place for me, too. And that was very safe and very comfortable. As I was sitting on my stool behind my podium. And then we went downstairs. Because afterwards it was, they had a Mother's Day lunch. With uh, chicken and beans and potatoes and good stuff. And we go downstairs and we've got the kids in tote, Bree and Elise. And I look over to Lindsay and I say... Where should we sit? And we look out at the room and we see a sea of white faces. And my wife has been reading a, a book uh, by Jody Picoult, uh, Small Great Things. And she's been reading a couple of articles about how we in the church are not colorblind. We see color and to deny that difference is inauthentic. And it doesn't give credit and value to people's different experience based on their nationality. And right in the middle of the sea of white faces is a black couple, an African-American couple. And she says, we're going to sit there. And I'm like, okay. So we go and we sit down. And I think as we went to sit down, everybody gathered in the room kind of collectively inhaled and held their breath. not necessarily because they were of a different nationality, 
but because these people were customers of the food pantry on a regular basis and on Sunday mornings usually were panhandling in the parking lot. And they're afraid that this couple was going to ask the potential new pastor for money. And I think in that moment, we all learn something. I know that I learned something. I know that I look at this picture of what the church is supposed to be. And it doesn't always look like that, at least in my experience. I also learned that I'm not an expert at this. I don't know what I'm doing. I just know that it doesn't look like it's supposed to. And I also learned that if I'm not willing to sit down at a table and eat with someone of a different nationality or race or language, if I'm not willing to do that, then what, what business do I have in passing out food to them or giving them clothes? The part of the problem in the church looking like it's supposed to look is me. And that was uncomfortable. See, the thing is, is my wife is a little bit more inclined to the leanings of the Holy Spirit than I am, I think. I think when you, you ignore what the Holy Spirit is challenging you to do enough, you kind of stop hearing him. So when my wife says something like that, I listen to her. And I think that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives as his people. He whispers to us, nudges us, tries to push us out of our comfort zone so that we can embody the love of Jesus in a new and powerful and different way. I think, I think too often we as Christians, especially of our brand, relegate Relegate the work of the Holy Spirit to what happens in that third article explanation of the creed. That the Holy Spirit gives us faith, but I believe that the Holy Spirit does far more than that. That He works powerfully and mightily to challenge us and push us in new directions. To go out of our comfort zone. To love people who are radically different than us. So the challenge that I have for you today is who is God calling you to love who is radically different than you? And maybe it's somewhere a world away as we travel around the world to different places and make a difference. Where we can learn that our set of priorities isn't the best. That, that things in Orange County are not perfect. That with all we have, we still have divorce and death and destruction and hard things. Sometimes when we go other places, we find more joy and more peace as people are knit together in community. Maybe it's somebody right here, a neighbor across the street. Maybe it's someone in the foster care system who has an experience of life that is radically different than you. See, I think the Holy Spirit encourages us, challenges us to love like Jesus loved. Because after all, that's what Jesus does for us. He loves someone who is radically different than himself. That he can call you and me, us, 
sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, by His grace. Amen.